Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Political State Podcast from the Oklahoman. Here in the Oklahoman's podcast studio, I'm Ben Felder. Joining me, my co-host, Carmen Foreman, the Oklahoman State Capitol reporter. And our guest this week is State Representative Shane Stone, State Representative at least for another year and a half, still plenty of time, uh, but Representative Stone, who just announced that he will not seek re-election in 2020, the election year last year. So, of course, we quickly reached out because... Uh, lawmakers who are not facing re-election are our favorite lawmakers because they're the most outspoken, right? So we, we look forward to you revealing all and not having to worry about the election day consequences. But seriously, Representative, thanks so much for your time and welcome. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And yeah, and yeah I'm, I'm an open book now. I can say whatever I want. Yeah. Right? Now you're in the minority party and minority parties are typically all already more outspoken. Um, it just adds a little bit more layer onto it when you don't have to seek re-election. But, uh, you know, I want to get into some of the issues of the session that we, we recently finished up and then you know, you still have another session, another year, and just some of the, the, the future prospects uh, for yourself and your party. But uh, but first, tell us just a little bit about your decision to, to not seek re-election. That's kind of rare, maybe not as rare as it once was, but uh, uh, first elected in 2014, so you still have plenty of time before you reach term limits. But uh, why did you feel like uh, this was the time to, to hang it up? You know, it, it was just the time to find that next chapter in my life. Um, a lot of things kind of came together, and, and I got to have an incredible experience serving in the House. It was the honor of a lifetime, really a dream to, to be, get to be in that role. Um, but at the same time, it, at some point, you've got to start thinking about the future. And that's what it mostly was for me. Um, I know there are also several people in South Oklahoma City that are are eager to run for the seat that I think are going to carry on, uh, carry on the work well. So I was comfortable thinking now could be the time. Yeah. When you look back at your, uh, you know, eight years, which will end up, or eight years, uh, from 14 to, to 18, so four years now, end up being six years for you. Um, I mean, you know, what are you, what are you most proud of? What do you hang your hat on on what you were able to accomplish? So there are a few things that I, I really think about when I think about, you know, what were we able to accomplish? And of course, the revenue measures from last year have to be kind of the first thing on, on that. And I understand that was the work of a lot of people and and really, I was just a vote, but I got to be part of that negotiation, um, which was an incredible experience to get to, you know, be part of mm-hmm. policymaking on that level. And on top of that, we were able to make the tax system a bit more progressive with that measure, bring hundreds of millions of dollars to the state annually. Um, but then I also think about, you know, what have I accomplished in my district? And and the first thing I think of there is. Um, bringing Hispanic Cultural Day to the Capitol, which mm-hmm. got to have its third, and we got to have our third annual Hispanic Cultural Day this year. But that's something that I'm hoping, you know, 20 years from now, uh, we look back and, and I realize I got to be a small part of. I wasn't, it wasn't my idea initially, but um, I had a constituent come to me and say, why aren't we doing this? And, you know, I just got to, I got to facilitate that, um, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. And so representing House District 89, which you mentioned the South Oklahoma City district, very diverse kind of working class district with, uh, with a large Hispanic population. Um, you know, you kind of talk about some of the budget fights last year. Carmen, you may not know this, given that you just joined us this year, this session, but usually the legislative sessions have been uh, pretty uh, eventful affairs, not quite as boring as this year, although it wasn't, it wasn't boring. So but, I've heard. Yeah. I've heard budget <laughs> budget negotiations are often a lot more heated than they were this year. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I look back at that and there's it's really interesting to take a step back and look at what happened last year. You talk about the 5% GPT. I mean, we had numerous special sessions it looked like we were going to get close at times it just didn't get there and uh you know i I know you didn't get everything you wanted your party didn't get everything you wanted few people do in in politics but um if you go back two years ago the idea that we'd be at five percent gpt just seemed you know impossible to believe right yeah and i remember um 
during that special session, I think it was about November, um, where we had a sky was falling moment and we had the, the A plus vote and that was before step up. And of course yeah. there were those several different things we did. Um, and there were five of us Democrats that voted no on that measure. And it, it fell five votes short. Um, if I'm, yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, that's exactly how it worked out. Um, but we were told right then, you know, you're overplaying your hand. You're trying to get too much. 5% gross production tax is never going to happen. But we looked at that measure and we saw a lot of regressive taxes on there, in there, not enough progressive taxes. And we still didn't end up with everything we wanted because, you know, we wanted income taxes on high earners, capital gains uh, reform. But we ended up with a much better package than where we started the, the conversation. Yeah. You know, I am curious, after we spoke the other day, um, I heard a rumor that, um, and obviously it's the Capitol, so there's always rumors, but that you, part of the reason you decided to step down is um, because there was some angst within the Democratic Party and that they were planning to basically run someone against you. And I guess that sort of stems from a couple months ago, they also had a conversation about um, penalizing elected Democrats who had supported Republicans in the 2018 election, and you supported your father running for city council, though that's a nonpartisan race and a whole complicated issue. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, so the people that have talked to me about running now that I've stepped down or once they learned I was going to step down, I had several people say, you know, if you're going to step down, I'm going to run, but I wasn't going to run against you. I hadn't heard anybody that was going to run against me. Um, but I'm also glad you brought up that uh, the Democratic Party was talking about censuring several um, elected Democrats who would endorse Republicans. Um, and like you pointed out, mine was my father running for city council in a nonpartisan race, which is a very particular situation. Um, but moves like that, and, and it really frustrates me in Oklahoma and nationally, especially, um, the Democrats feel the need to act like there can never be a Republican answer that works anywhere, and Republicans act like there can never be a Democratic answer that works anywhere. And moves like that are the reason that the party really isn't the moving voice in Oklahoma. It's our Congresswoman, it's our House Democratic Caucus, and on the Republican side, it's the same thing. Their party platform's much further out there than a lot of their members um, and several of their congressmen, although there are also some that are pretty close to the platform. Yeah. Did you have any, um, I guess, you know, the Dem Party decided not to officially censure you, but they decided to censure others. Did people reach out to you and express um, concerns that you had helped your father or endorsed your father in the race? I had, I saw some things on Facebook, which, you know, Facebook is, you can find a lot of, um, a lot of anger on Facebook. And I saw some people that said, you know, how dare he ever help a Republican? But, um, when you serve an elected office, you, you learn to brush those things off. I didn't have anybody that who I valued their opinion that called me and said, you know, what are you doing? I, I had a lot of people that understood it. And thankfully, I had several members of the caucus that helped me and helped my dad because they, they saw his vision for Oklahoma City and appreciated it. Um, and they endorsed him as well, although I won't name them since I guess the party didn't even notice. You might get them in trouble. I might get them in trouble. <laughs> Yeah, can't even endorse your own father these days, huh? Right. I mean, although I mean, it is interesting. There, we've talked about it a, a lot. You know, the, the what's the what should the philosophy be for the Democratic Party? The, the, you know, having their state convention this weekend actually, and, and there will be a new you know chairperson. There's always this kind of split between does the, does the Democratic Party need to be this just you know you know very left you know progressive uh, you know urban based you know platform does it need to be more statewide trying to really appeal to, to rural areas and more moderate um it seems like that's a tricky balance and one that the state party hasn't quite 
figured out yet? Or, or I don't know, would you agree or, or uh, not? I would definitely agree that they haven't quite figured that out. And when we look at the map right now, um, Democrats have a stronghold both in Oklahoma City and in Tulsa, um, as well as a few other pockets in the state. Um, but we really don't have many rural seats. But we're getting to a point where there, there are a few more urban seats that Democrats could pick up for the state legislature. Um, but if we want to talk about the future of the party, we, we have to find answers that are somewhere in the middle. Um, and nationally, we're seeing that as a problem. It's a problem when politicians are drawing their own districts. Um, my district is, is extremely blue. I, I've never had a Republican opponent, and that's a problem. Um, and when you have that happening in every district in the state, both parties are in a position where they're trying to nominate just the most the most Democratic Democrat or the most Republican Republican. And those aren't the people that tend to have the best answers. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about the, the future of the party. So you're you're currently the House Assistant Minority Leader. So you're in leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about the future of the party and future elections, so 2022, when we see statewide elections again, um, it seems like every statewide election, the bench of Democrats right now to run at a statewide level is shrinking. I, I think Democrats have definitely had, you know, as you said, some gains in the urban areas and really have kind of solidified themselves as an urban party um, and have exercised power at different levels, city council, county, you know, Oklahoma County. I mean, I, I think the Democrats in Oklahoma City have been pretty relevant, a little tougher statewide. Um, but that bench is getting, you know, smaller. And not to say that you couldn't run for something. I mean, just you're you were in leadership, so you're naturally just going to be on that bench. But you know, by not running again now, you're kind of taking yourself out of the bench. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, just kind of how would you assess, you know, the party's, you know, collective ability to to field candidates going forward on statewide statewide races, governor all the way down. So the party's in a bit of a rough spot right now. Um, I, th- I think we'll probably have a really good candidate for state superintendent, and that will be in an interesting spot because um, Superintendent Hoffmeister will term out yeah. in that off yeah. year compared to every other statewide official. Um, but we're we're also in a positive spot because we have a lot of bright young stars just thinking in the House and, you know, in the Senate, there are also several. But um, in the House, when you talk about just on the South side, Mickey Dollins and Forrest Bennett doing great things. Um Emily Virgin has a name ID that seems to be statewide. She has a big following. Uh, Monroe Nichols up in Tulsa. We have a lot of young yep. people um, that eight years from now, when those seats are may finally be competitive, um, I think we'll have a lot of people that'll that'll be set to run for those seats. Um, but it's going to take some time. Yeah. Are you are you, are, you, are you done running for elected office? I am officially now. Well, <laughs> you know, never say never. I guess because I'm still. Um, I'm still 26 years old, so you know, if 20 years from now uh, I get the itch again, it's a whole different lifetime. It would feel like, but um, for the near future in my immediate career, it's it's nowhere on the on the radar. Do yeah. you have an idea of what you'd like to do next instead? You know, I've I've thought about that a lot, um, and I just got my master's degree in public administration. Um, so a lot of people go from that to working in nonprofit or working in in local government or um, federal government in some way, and I want to find a way to to continue public service because um, it, it really is an itch that once you get to you get to fill you you want to keep going on with. Um, but I've got to decide what that looks like. But I have a year and a half before I'm done being a state representative, so I have a lot of time to consider all my options and and make those decisions. So give us a peek behind the curtain here. Uh, every lawmaker will say whether it's an election year or not that doesn't impact how I vote or you know what moves I make in the legislative session. Um, 
maybe you'll say the same thing, but I, I get a chance to ask here now because, you know, it will be an election year next year, but not for you. Um, will that change anything for you? And, and maybe not even just the votes, but you naturally have to think about how you communicate and posture, right? I mean, it, it's a reality. You know, if you want to get reelected, there are certain things that you have to do and, and how you have to position yourself. But how, so how will it change for you next session, given that you aren't going to be on the ballot at the end of the year? Um, it's definitely a bit more relaxed and and I've tried to, to never worry about re-election um, when casting several of my votes, and I've cast some very controversial ones that I think showcase that. Um, but I think a lot of people out there, it, it is part of what they're thinking about. Um, but for me, I get to, next year I get to cast those votes, and normally I would think, okay, here's what's best for my district, so, so that's how I'm going to vote. Now how do I message that? And I'd have to start formulating that. Next year, I don't necessarily have to do that. I, I still will explain my votes to my district. I'm still willing to stand on every one of them, um, but they're, they're certainly a little less concerned to, um, okay, how do, I, how do I explain that and make sure I clearly communicate why I thought that was best for South Oklahoma City? Yeah. Are we going to hear um, fewer floor speeches from you in the next session? You know, that's a, that's a good question <laughs> because when I came in, I, I started off kind of loud. For my first month, I didn't touch my microphone. But then, you know, kind of I exploded and I, I gave a lot of debates and asked a lot of questions. I'm certainly going to continue to ask a lot of questions and, and offer debate um, when I think it's necessary. But just this year, I, I felt like I talked a lot less. Maybe it's the nature of the, of the building this year that it was um, just quieter out there. But I'll, I'll probably still be one <laughs> of the most talkative members. Well, you talk about your first year, you know, not not speaking up that much from the floor. That's definitely not common now. I mean, freshman lawmakers are very quick to the microphone now. Yeah, and we had forty six freshmen in yeah. the house. We've, we have one and fact so, is just you have so many. Yeah, so you, some of them have to. Um, but they're also, you know, I've served with several legislators that they termed out after twelve years that I felt like I never heard them speak once. Um, I think it's more of a personality deal most times. Um, but I encourage new legislators, get out there and ask questions. And everyone feels like you have to be getting at something with a question, leading into something, you know, making some big point. Um, but I urge legislators, even if you just don't understand the topic, ask the question so you can learn something. The person running the bill, it makes sure that they fully understand the subject and you come out with better public policy. Yeah. What's, uh, what are some of the big issues next year? I mean, I always talk about education and health care. There may be an expansion you know, question on the ballot next year. So that may, you know, tent the conversation at the Capitol. But what do you ex- expect the 2020 legislative session to be mainly focused on? And once again, it'll be an election year. So that'll it'll definitely give it its uh, a unique flavor. So I, I think the two things that it will probably be most focused on are Medicaid expansion, because like you said, there's, there's likely to be a ballot initiative. Um, and I think the Republican majority will want to do it their way rather than the ballot initiative way. Um, So we may see some conversation around that. I also think that criminal justice reform is going to be the big ticket item because there were a lot of things that were set aside this year. Um, And one theory on that out there is that they were being pushed off until an election year. So that way Republicans could say, look how much we did on criminal justice reform leading into that election year. Um, So I think we'll, we'll we'll hopefully get more done on that than we did this year. Do you think we'll see other lawmakers like yourself who decide, you know, I, I just I'm I'm I've had my time and I don't want to run for reelection? I think out of out of 101 of us, 149, including the Senate, there are always going to be a few. Um, I know Ben Loring up in Miami has mentioned that he's not going to be running again. He while he was running last time, he said this mm-hmm. is going to be my last go. Um, 
so on our side we have two and i'm sure you know just out of the 149 you probably will see one or two more but nothing like um last year it seemed like every other person was dropping out saying i don't want to do this again because we just had honestly a miserable two years um by by the usual standard yeah do you expect to still be involved in some campaigns probably not a little bit um especially you know i've now i have a lot of friends that are going to want me to knock doors because um we just are close personal friends and i'll help some of them out um but i'm not eager to just to go be the guy that's you know still out there beating all the doors on the campaign i'm kind of excited to take a year of not doing that yeah definitely i realize it's early but do you think i mean have you thought about whether or not you will endorse uh, a democrat to run for your seat um it's very possible but it's it is very early so i want to see who all gets who gets in the race um and if it 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 may look like it did in 2014 when i ran when there were four democrats no republicans on the ballot um and that would make me less likely to get involved. But certainly if there's a general election, you know, that that makes it a bit more likely that I get involved um, just because I have a closer relationship with a lot of the Democrats that would be running. It, it's easy for, you know, the layperson or even someone who's interested in politics to feel like, man, it's the 2020 election is still so far off. But really, I mean, uh, in competitive races, and this will be, it sounds like a competitive Democratic primary, at least in your in your district, these are this is the time that these campaigns start, right? I mean, the summer of the year before. I mean, this is kind of the, the kickoff to campaigns, right? So we expect, you expect that we'll see quite a bit of, uh, uh, you know, we'll see some candidate announcements here in the coming weeks? I would I would bet by the end of June there's at least one or maybe even two announced. Um, when I ran in 2014, it was March of 2013 was when I started fundraising and knocking doors. Um, so, you know, by this standard, that would have been three months ago. So everybody's kind of is going to have to start quickly and really get out there and work hard. Um, but there's still plenty of time. I wanted to make sure I made my announcement and left plenty of time for um, candidates to get out there and knock all the doors, for voters to get to hear what they're all about before they had to make their decision. And that's kind of the nature of the House. I mean, you're kind of in constant campaign mode. And if you want to, you know, win a seat for the first time, I mean, it's a year and a half at least, right? I mean, that you've got to give yourself that runway into the election. Yeah. And we, we have several members of our caucus, Jacob Rosecrans, Cindy Munson, who ran several times um, and won in specials. So they were running literally three years in a row they were on the ballot. Um, but even for the rest of us, being on the ballot every two years, it, it keeps you on the doors consistently, um, which is a healthy thing, right? You want that from your from your local elected officials to be on your doorstep asking for your opinion regularly. So it's a good thing, but it is it is a very busy existence. Yeah. What type of candidate should should your district have? What, what kind of candidate would your district support? What, who, what type of lawmaker? I mean, feel free to give us a name if you want. But uh, what, what type of lawmaker, assuming you're not going to give us a name, uh, would you like to see um, replace you? It, it should be somebody working class. It should be somebody blue collar. It should be somebody that um, can just sit and have a regular conversation, somebody that's very um, a man or woman of the people, if you will. Um, that was always who I tried to make sure I was being consistently, um, not somebody who's going to go up there and just be part of the status quo, but somebody who's also uh, maybe a bit outspoken and willing to be part of the fight because it's a very unique district. It's one of the, um, it is one of the lowest income districts in the state. So if you're going to be out there, um, you've got to realize that most of that building is against the people that you're going to be representing. Um, so they'll rep- they will, I'm certain, elect somebody that's going to be outspoken um, and on the side of working people. Yeah. Any concern that a Republican can make a run for the seat? 
You know, I should say yes. Yeah. I certainly should say yeah. yes. Um, but honestly, no, because it's the district is it votes in the high 50s for Democratic presidential candidates, which are the, you know, generally that's our our bottom watermark um, here in the state. So I'm quite certain it'll be a Democrat. Um, but you never know. And, you know, just like I said earlier, um, people should take a nonpartisan approach to, to their elections and, and look at who the best candidate is. That being said, the folks that I've talked to um, who have largely been Democrats about being interested in the seat, uh, they all seem like they would be the best candidates. Yeah. What's your assessment of Governor Stitt? It's first year. You've been in office for several years, so you're kind of the vet in this in this scenario. I mean, different offices, but um, uh, how would you assess uh, Governor Stitt's first legislative session? He's different. Different is the first okay. word that comes to mind, um, just because he shows up on the House floor randomly, which, you know, Governor Fallon, I think I saw her on the House floor for State of the States, but also um, maybe one or two other times. But he would just periodically throughout session show up, um, and me and him disagree on a lot of on a lot of policy issues. That being said, um, he he does have a sense of direction. He's always coming from a sincere point, and I generally can follow his logic and go, okay, I understand why he thinks it works that way. I may think it works differently, um, but he's also very likable. Uh, I was talking to a constituent, a Democrat that um, has gotten. He's he calls me periodically, um, and he always talks about you know those those darned dirty Republicans. I mean, he is just as Democrat as Democrat gets. And he said, I can't help but like the guy. And I told him, I said, I know, me too. And it's kind of frustrating because, you know, we're supposed to be, you know, on opposite sides of the aisle. But at at the same time, he is a really likable guy. I think he's a good guy um, and has that sense of direction. He seems like he's tapped into voters in the state. um, But me and him still, needless to say, disagree on several issues. Do you think that uh, the uh, Kevin Stitt factor, the likable having a likable governor for the first time in a long time is going to hurt Democrats in 2020 and 2022? Um, it would be a lot better if it, for Democrats, the outlook if Mary Fallon was still the governor. That being said, um, I think the 2020 election is going to continue to be uh, about President Trump and what's going on nationally, especially since it's not a statewide year, um, which I think is beneficial to Democrats. And I, I think that in the urban areas, we'll continue to see that little bit of growth where there's room to grow. Um, it's The stit factor, I don't think, is going to come into effect until we see two more years of him and then get into that statewide year, and then we'll see kind of how the state really feels. But there's, there's a lot of time for um, him to either continue to succeed by the state standards. There's also a lot of time for things to go awry. So, Well, you know, you say that you think the president's going to be, uh, you know, major theme of the election, and, and of course, I mean, he'll he'll be on the ballot. Um, yeah, that, that may bode well for Democrats in the urban areas, may not in the in the rural areas. Right? I mean, just strong Trump following in rural Oklahoma. Yeah, and it's um, there are a few people that we could point to and say, you know, they outperformed Hillary Clinton by forty points, and we have several of those. Um, but the truth of the matter is, folks in rural areas, Donald Trump has their ear, and I, I think you're right. It's it makes it very difficult to win um, in southeast Oklahoma, where they vote for the president, you know, by 80 to 20 margins, and in western Oklahoma. Um, so it's gonna, this year is going to be more about that urban-suburban area where we have a chance to make gains. I know we talked the other day, and you haven't had your mindset on any of the Democratic presidential candidates yet, but I, I'm curious, do you think, do any of the presidential candidates, do any of them stand out as uh, who could be best for down ballot Democrats here in the state? Um, 
I think you got to look towards the moderates, and I, I feel like I've been preaching the gospel of moderation up here, you know, for the for the past fifteen minutes or so. But um, I really hope that the Democrats will nominate a moderate candidate. Um, I think Amy, Amy Klobuchar would have been um, an excellent, still w- could be an excellent choice, um, but she's polling quite low. Um, someone like that, possibly a Joe Biden, um, I think has some of that moderate appeal. But I worry instead the Democrats may nominate. Uh, a more extreme candidate. But you say, because you're thinking about the general election, and you're saying that moderation plays well if you're trying to get maybe those, maybe some Republican voters, but maybe those kind of independent voters. The last presidential primary, Bernie Sanders, you know, won Oklahoma's primary against Clinton, um, not a moderate. Um, So does that kind of, once again, kind of speak to maybe the split right now for the Democratic Party in Oklahoma? I mean, it seems like there's so many Democrats that you know really are, are wanting to tap into that kind of national progressive you know movement, but you know you're, here you are saying like listen if we're going to reach out and, and get some of these rural areas where you know that may not be the playbook. I just you know well I just I'm just pointing out once again it just seems like there's that divide and I don't know I mean how you how you fix that or how the party goes about. Yeah, and and I think a lot of it is when you look at primary voters you know not many people show up for primary elections. Um, Democratic primary voters tend to be about the furthest left group you could get in the United States. And so in Oklahoma, it tends to be about the furthest left voting block you could get in Oklahoma. And so while the while those voters want to nominate the Donald Trumps and the Bernie Sanders or, um, you know, those types of folks, it, what really works in November, I think, is when you have a more moderate candidate. Um, 20, 2018 was a, or sorry, 2016 was a unique circumstance because while I would say Hillary Clinton was the more moderate candidate of the two, um, she also had a lot of negatives on her that just, they worked very well. And we could talk about, you know, we could have three hours of discussion on why those negatives worked well. And I think it's for a lot of um, unfortunate reasons. But uh, if we could nominate a likable, moderate Democrat, I think that's that's your best chance to um, defeat Donald Trump. And it's your best chance to make gains down ballot all across the country, including Oklahoma. Well, as we wrap up here, one more question for you. Uh, what's your assessment of, of Congresswoman Horn, uh, elected elected last year in her first term, um, progressive, but she's got some of that moderate streak. I mean, even this week with the, the vote on the, on the Dreamers, uh, supporting that effort, but maybe supporting some re- Republican initiatives to, 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 to tighten the focus on, on undocumented minors. I just kind of, how would you assess her, her first several months in office? I think she is just doing an absolutely incredible job. And I was so happy when she got elected um, in 2018, and she has she has represented Oklahoma City, I think, to a T, where it, it is a progressive city. It's becoming a progressive, urban, more urban city. But at the same time, she realizes that it's still Oklahoma um, and that Oklahoma Democrats are quite a bit different than California Democrats or Massachusetts Democrats. So she she's willing to work across the aisle. And that's the type of person I want representing me in Washington um, and at the state for that matter. But um She's maintaining both sides of that, I think, very well and in, in holding that balance. Yeah. Well, uh, Representative Stone, definitely not an exit interview because you have more than a year left <laughs> of your term, but um, but have announced that you won't seek re-election in 2020. So congratulations on that. Um, and thanks for coming in and just kind of sharing some of your perspective on this legislative session and just your time in office. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Political State Podcast. You can find each and every episode online, your favorite podcasting app. We're also on YouTube. Just type in Oklahoman in the YouTube search browser. With Carmen Foreman, I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again next week.